This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005. Welcome to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Uh, my guest in this episode is a genuine Perth identity, although uh, he would probably want to correct that and say that he is a man from Kalgoorlie. Uh, grew up in a pub, no less, in Kalgoorlie, but he's gone on to become one of the most uh, skilled and recognised legal minds in the country uh, and can list among his clients some of the most colourful and controversial characters, uh, I dare say, to come before a court. Uh, from Alan Bond uh, to John Button, Jimmy Cracker, Noel Crichton-Brown, more recently Troy Buswell. Uh, he was even called in uh, in that uh, crazy Novak Djokovic visa saga earlier this year. He loves his footy. He's a board member and life member at the Royals. Uh, he's on the board of the Wacker uh, and no stranger to a racetrack as well. You might also have seen him playing music in a pub in his band, or even read his book. We'll get into all of this, hopefully, over the course of the next hour. Uh, my guest is Tom Percy QC. Hello, Tom. How are you? Very well, thanks, Tim. Great uh, to be here. Thank you for your time. Uh, I mentioned there that you have uh, had to act on behalf of some colourful characters, but you're a pretty colourful character yourself. I wouldn't have thought so. I'm pretty low-key. <laughs> Maybe a different colour. <laughs> <laughs> but you're a busy man, aren't you? You do a lot of different stuff. Well, I do. Um, I've never got two minutes to myself. I but, bet. But yeah. It's all about time management. You know, some people say, how do you get through your job? I say, I've got about five jobs. Uh, and to organise them, you've got to have a lot of good people around you. And you pay a lot of people to do things for you. Mm-hmm. I and mean, I've never cleaned my house or washed my clothes or anything <laughs> like that. I try not to drive a car when I possibly can because it takes away from the time you yeah. can be on the phone or on the internet. So. Yeah. And too many uh, idiots on the road too. Well, that, that's also that's also also a factor. Yeah. Um, so Kalgoorlie, I mentioned that you know you're you're one of those genuine Perth identities, but you you identify more as being from Kalgoorlie, correct? It's where you grew up. It's where your you know your your family hails from. Um, tell us about your association with Kalgoorlie. Why it's still why it's still such a special place to you? Well, I think my mother's family came over here at the turn of the last century, and. Uh, the, uh, my grandfather was an Italian miner. He came, right. came out here from northern Italy and he married a, a local girl. So that's where my mother's family came from. So I'm a quarter Italian. And uh, my, my grandfather came up from Perth after the First World War. He fought in France. Yeah. When he came back, he had a few dollars waiting for him, or pounds in those days. So he took a lease on the Federal Hotel in Hannon Street mm-hmm. uh, in the 20s, eventually bought it. He ran it till he retired, and then my father took it over. He ran it till he passed away, and then my mother ran it after that. So, number one, Hannon Street will always be home. And uh, as you say, um, you can take the boy out of Kalgoorlie, but you can't do vice versa. What was it like growing up in a pub? 
Well, I, I didn't know anything else. So, you know, from yeah. the time I opened my eyes, uh, there were lots of people around me. Uh, the smell of beer and cigarettes was always home to me. And uh, yeah, even when I went to boarding school, I'd walk past, I remember sometimes going down to Claremont, the Claremont Hotel, and I could smell beer and cigarettes. And by God, that smelled good. <laughs> and it still does. We don't smell so much of the smoke anymore, but, you know, the stale smell of beer in the morning is something that uh, I never got out of my system. Yeah. A pretty wild place, though, particularly in those times, Kalgoorlie. I mean, it has a reputation, a colourful reputation, and some great characters to come out of Kalgoorlie. I suppose these were the people that you grew up around. But... Well, we did. I mean, I, I grew up around thinking nothing of the fact that people drank beer from 9 o'clock in the morning <laughs> till, uh, till they went to bed at night. I try not to do that myself, but uh, to some extent it's rubbed off. Yeah. Uh, but I just uh, didn't think they're quite as wild as they are because there were no drugs in those days. And uh, the whole time that I lived at the hotel, from the time I was born um, and uh, until I left the pub in my 30s, um, I never, ever saw a security person there. Yeah. So unlike any pub today, you've got someone at the door checking identities, checking things and making sure people stayed in line. There was no need for that in Kalgoorlie. No mm. pub had security people. There were no doormen. And, uh, I suppose the publicans sorted it out, yeah? The publicans and the locals. And the patrons. As soon as, as soon as anyone looked like getting out of control or doing the wrong thing, they were sorted out by the locals. So mm. it, was a, it was a community kind of atmosphere in the pub and uh, everyone knew everyone else and uh, you were there to have a drink and a good time. No one really ate much in those days. I mean, there, there was, no, there was no, no meals. I mean, at one stage, I remember we got a toasted sandwich machine, which is a very newfangled thing, and that was uh, almost like cheating, having something to eat during the course of a five-hour session at the pub. Yeah, I bet. Um, I, I know you did take a bit of a, a break from pub life uh, to attend <laughs> Scotch College. Um, was that the, the, the first time you regularly had to come, you know, to Perth, to the big smoke? Look, it, it was. I came down a few times. I remember that the first time I can remember coming down was the 1962 uh, Commonwealth Games. Right. And uh, everywhere in, in, across the state they were given a holiday for that, not because there was any TV, because there wasn't any TV in the bush. Uh, but my mother thought she'd send me down to stay with an uncle and auntie down here and they might be able to get me into one of the days of the Games. And the way I came down was I was put on a truck with a truckie. Right. And uh, sent down overnight. You know, no one thought much about that in those yeah. days and I, I can remember getting off at Meriden on the way down there and they had a TV, a very fuzzy TV screen with snow all over. It's the first time I ever saw a TV set. Is that right? At the age of about um, eight. So um, I went down and stayed in Perth with my uncle Doug and Artie Ev and uh, they got me a ticket to the closing ceremony. So at the eight years old I became a sports tragic Brilliant. I was mystified by the whole thing. Yeah. Going to Parry Lake Stadium, I can just see it there. I can still tell you what I had for lunch that day. And I can <laughs> some of the athletes that I saw, and I, I, there was no way in the world I was not going to be a sports. Complete tragic from that moment onwards. Well, you've certainly been that. Yeah, unfortunately, that's something I'll, I'll never get over. But I blame my mother for that again. Yeah. What did you think of Perth when you came to it? Obviously, it was wrapped up in this experience of the Commonwealth Games, but, you know, did it seem like a... Just a, an overwhelmingly massive place to you? It was. It was you know, bigger than New York City ever turned out to be when I finally got there. <laughs> it was amazing. And uh, it bore no relationship to uh, Kalgoorlie, but I, I wanted to get back there, although Kalgoorlie was home. Kalgoorlie was the epicentre of the universe. And uh, it probably always will be for me. I mean, I'm, 
I always make a pilgrimage back there several yeah. times a year. Outside of race mates, do you go back to Cal much? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I try and price myself out of the legal field up there, but uh, <laughs> I feel a hangover coming on as the plane lands. <laughs> I know too many bad people up there. <laughs> I they, bet you do. They always seem to locate me and uh, lead me astray. But uh, I can tell. Is, I can feel it when you're in in town. It is. A, it is a spiritual place for me. I mean, uh, I think if your parents and grandparents are buried there. Uh, you become part of that country as well. And I feel like I have a connection to the country there. And it's something that I, I feel very much when I when I stand out on the in the dirt at Kalgoorlie, this is home. I, I was going to, uh, we're sort of stepping out of the, the, the chronological order here, but um, Alan Bond, I mentioned at the start, one of the characters that you've um, represented in court, but he was also um, someone who played a role in the, um, the, the finishing up of the Federal Hotel, am I right? Well, he, he knocked off uh, Hannah's Brewery. Uh, he when he when he bought Swan, he decided that it, all the beer in Kalgoorlie saw a huge market for beer, and he couldn't see why we had to have our own beer. Yeah. So he just closed down the brewery, and uh, everyone had to drink Swan from from that time onwards. You know, it was a terrible thing to do. I can't believe I ever represented him having done that. Yeah. Why did you? Because he asked you to. It's called the cab rank rule. You know, <laughs> you know even if the Claremont serial killer comes along, you've got to defend him if you're if you're able to do it. So you don't you can't pick and choose your clients. It's like it's like cabbies; they can't just knock you back because of what you look like. Uh, and did you uh, ask him about that? That though, did you have a conversation about? No, that? I didn't. I, you know, he. I, I think he had a bit of a problem with reality in his later days. I mean, mm. I remember we were looking through the jury list, uh, and he went, went to me. And I said, oh, I know this family here. They come from Kalgoorlie. He says, Kalgoorlie, oh, they love me in Kalgoorlie. Better get, see if we can get those blokes on the jury. I said, and I was going to say, you think they love you in Kalgoorlie? They hate you in Kalgoorlie for what you yeah. do. I mean, he did a lot of Especially good things. Especially me. He did a lot of, he did a lot of good things. Uh, and uh, he was a very colourful character. And I think his, uh, his contribution to the state was great. But probably looked at with some circumspection still in Kalgoorlie. Oh, and in Perth too, I dare say. Yeah. In some quarters. A, a rather mixed reputation. Um, let's go back to your schooling days, Scotch College. Um, what were you like as a student? Well, I, I thought I'd love to come to Perth, but I didn't, I didn't count on how homesick I would be. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was dreadfully homesick when I got there. What um, did you miss? I just missed the pub and being at home and my mates and things like that. I didn't have any mates there. Mm. And, uh, you know, I didn't have the sort of things that I had at home. Um, you know, the kind of food that I like to eat and the people I like to be around. So I guess it's the same for any kid who was, who was sent to boarding school at the age of, um, of uh, eight years old. Mm. And, you know, I cried myself to sleep on many occasions. I had a mechanism for going to sleep. I could still hear the train travelling between Claremont and Swanbourne stations. And I used to pretend that I was on the Kalgoorlie Express going back to Kalgoorlie and it's the only way I could get to sleep. Yeah, right. Why, why did you come down to Perth to go to Well, Scotch? my mother was widowed when I was uh, five and my sister was three and she worked very, very hard and uh, I think she thought that would be best for us if we went to a better education system that Kalgoorlie could offer. And a lot of the other kids uh, whose parents could afford it and she could afford it uh, sent them to boarding school and it was just the done thing in those days. Yeah. How long did it take you to, to settle in? Some years. I mean, I, I never really enjoyed Scotch until I was in about uh, uh, fourth or fifth year high school. I, yeah. I really didn't like it at all. Yeah, right. It's and, not not Scotch as such. I just didn't want to be away from home, and uh, I just didn't didn't like the life. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, when did you start become becoming um, interested in the law and a, and a legal career and, and I suppose just the, the spirit of the argument? I never really did until I left school. I uh, didn't know what I was going to do. I wanted to do arts. I was interested in literature. I thought I'd become a school teacher. Uh, my particular passion was uh, for French literature and the French language. So I studied that at university. But the end of first year, all my mates who I was at college with, I was at St George's College there, they were all moving into law. I'd never even given law a second thought. Yeah. And uh, I said, what do you want to do law for? They said, well, that's what we want to do. It's, um, I had no background in law. No, no one in my family had been in the law and um, had not, knew nothing about it at all. But I didn't want to be left behind in the arts faculty, <laughs> so I transferred. I said to my mother, what do you think I'd do law? And she, she thought that would be a wonderful idea. Yeah. Well, we need to take a break. After that, we'll get into some of the more uh, extraordinary cases that you've been a part of uh, over your many years in the profession. This is Inspiring Stories. Tom Percy, QC, is our special guest. Back with more right after this. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Everyone has a story to tell. This one brought to you by Barra and O'Day. And more than most, I think my guest, uh, Tom Persick, you see, would know a phenomenal number of stories, probably stories too, that some people would not want told, Tom. You well, must harbour right. so many secrets. Probably not that many secrets. <laughs> <laughs> I think most of it comes out uh, in the course of a court case. But, uh, yeah, I, I think back on the amount of cases I've done. I, I've been in the game now, I think, uh, 44 years going on as a practising lawyer. And over that time, I've, I've done well over uh, 1,000 jury trials. Mm. And with magistrates' court trials as well, family court trials, tribunal cases and things like that, I wouldn't even like to start to count. But, mm. uh, very serious cases uh, are ones that you remember, but you also remember some of the more frivolous ones from time to time. Yeah. Is there any anything we can read into, you know, the, the way you seem to gravitate towards the um, defence uh, in criminal cases where we're talking about, you know, criminality at the highest end, you know, murders or acts of extreme violence, those very heinous crimes, considered heinous at least by the general public. Why did you gravitate more towards that side of law? Well, that's a complex question, Tim, but yeah. uh, I think it's probably fair to say I didn't gravitate towards them, they gravitated towards me. <laughs> well, that's one way of looking at it. When I first, I'm sure there's an explanation for that then. When I first started out, I was in general practice, as yeah. most people in the country are. I mean, I worked my first uh, few years of my career in a small firm in Kalgoorlie. And I did everything from wills, estates, divorces, uh, dividing fences, cats and dogs problems, uh, probate, mm. things like that. And when I came to Perth, I, I was open to doing anything. And I used to get briefed to go and do property settlements and custody cases and personal injury cases for people who were injured in motor vehicle accident. But eventually, people, for whatever reason, seemed to think that I was better at crime. And uh, in the end, I got so many briefs in relation to serious crime that no one else even tried to get in touch with me because they really had no availability. So mm. they found me rather than me finding me. I didn't make sit down and make a conscious decision. I'm going to do murder mm. and I'm going to do serious sexual assault mm. and drugs. I, ne I never said that at any stage. It just sort of worked out that way. So, you, I mean, you spend a lot of your time in, in the company, at least, of, of people who are accused 
of doing horrible things, though. It's a, a pretty unique environment for a person to spend a lot of their working life. You've got to understand the difference between barristers and solicitors. Basically, the barristers don't, don't spend much time with the client at all. Mm. Um, and you leave it to the solicitor who meets the client and then they take their instructions and they work out the brief and then they tie it up with a red ribbon and send it to you and you, <laughs> you deal with it in a bit of a vacuum. And if you're lucky, you might go and see them once in the prison before the trial. I mean, you don't spend a lot of time with them. Mm. That's the solicitor's lot. Sure. And they, they do all of that. But at least having to defend them or, or you know, present the, the better side of that person in well, court. If, the, if, if there's there a better one. side to present. Mm. Um, you know, I only work with what I've got. Mm. And uh, by the time it gets to me, a lot of options have gone through. The person has been told about pleading guilty that you effectively get half what you'd otherwise get. I mean, they say you get 25%, but you get a lot less if you plead guilty. And I often say to those people, you know, you're going to get, if you plead guilty five years' time, you'll be walking out of that jail. However, uh, if you don't, you might get 10 years. So if you wake up on this day in uh, 2027 and say, Tom Percy told me I'd be getting out today, but because I was so stubborn and I wanted to pursue this in a case where there was no defence, it's going to be doing another five or ten years, and that makes sense to a few of them. Have there ever been some people that you've had to represent? You've just gone, I, I can't help you. Um, you know, you, you, I suppose part of your job is to try to um, present some uh, elements of their personality or, or, or talk about their actions that might make them less culpable. But have you ever met some characters where you just go, you are just not a good person? Beyond salvation, very yeah. few, but there yeah. are some. Yeah. And there are some people who should never be let out of jail and they would be the outer extremity of the 1% of people I've met, of yeah. the tens of thousands that I've met, mm. who should never be out of jail. They need to be in jail for the community's protection. Yeah. But there are very few. Yeah. But you know, by I think you need to look at the statistics in the in the in the criminal field. That is, ninety eight percent of people plead guilty. So by the time is that they, right, ninety eight percent. When we're talking for everything from a, a speeding fine, seatbelt infringement, mobile fine, right through to shoplifting, and then very minor assaults, you go right up the gravamen of. of but ninety eight percent of people plead guilty. So all the ones you see uh, going to trial. And there might be 2,000 a year out of the 98,000 people who are charged with something. By the time they get to me, they've been through a solicitor, they've usually been through a junior counsel, and they've got some sort of defence. So by the time I get them and they say, we want you to go to trial, it's a very rare case where there's nothing to be said for them. And uh, they usually got some sort of defence. Some people, of course, who are absolutely banged up, dead to rights, guilty, will come and say, just find me something, find me an angle. And I said, well, that's not my job. You've got to tell me what the angle is. I mean, I can tell you how good it is, but you can tell me what you want to run. You weren't there. It wasn't you. That's not your DNA on the knife. They've got someone else or it was self-defence. Uh, it was insanity. What was it? I mean, I'll find an angle, if, but you've got to lead me in that direction. I'll then tell you if it's any good. And quite often I have to say to the solicitor, I say, look, thanks for coming. Uh, I've had a good look at this. I can't help you. Mm. You know, I, my my view is, and you can take the advice or leave it, is that you should plead guilty to this and take what discounts there may be on offer. Sometimes they do it, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they thank me, pay my account and go to another barrister. Mm. Uh, I've heard you um, answer this question before, um, and I know you get asked it a lot. It's that, that dinner party question, and you've said, if I had a dollar for every time someone asked me this. Um, so I'll, I'll throw you a dollar, Tom, although I know it's probably well below your alley rate. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll sort that out later. Representing, you know, people who are 
uh, on the wrong side of the law on, on many occasions. You know, people ask you, how can you do it? Why would you do it? Um, at least in the court of public opinion, they are very much the villains in that story. You know, and how you can possibly go to court and, and try to reduce their sentence or try to, you know, reduce their culpability. Um, how and why? Can, uh, well, there's two again, aspects of that. Here's we, a dollar, if you can answer that. Okay, well, we're, to, we're talking about... The, there's two divisions of that. Firstly, people who plead guilty. Yep. And you go and say they love their mother and they're kind to of their dog mm. and, you know, things like that. Um, because you don't want the court to impose a sentence which is more than anyone else has ever got for that same type of offence. You, you, you've got to say this is where it falls in the spectrum of criminality. This is what people regularly get for this. This is what the Court of Appeal have said is an appropriate sentence for this. We don't want him to have any... I don't have any difficulty with that because all you're saying is to the court, this is what the going rate is. This is about what he should get. This is where he stands. On the other hand, there are people who uh, uh, plead not guilty. You know, there's two sides to every story. And as I, I said earlier... Uh, sometimes that's not well known to the public until that person takes the stand and puts his side of uh, the events in question. Now, it might seem implausible sometimes, but I've been made a fool of on many occasions before where I've formed a view, usually much earlier in my career, that a person was guilty, that his story was so hopeless, so implausible, that no jury could accept it. But as the trials developed, I've suddenly started to wonder and think, that's probably true. And as the evidence comes out, I think, this guy's been telling me the truth all along and I've completely prejudged mm. him. I nearly turfed him out of my office mm. and uh, they get acquitted because of the way it played out. As it turns out, what he said from the start was true and it wasn't until all the evidence came to be examined that you knew that. On the other hand, um, you sometimes think, oh, this guy's got a really good defence and you know he should walk out of this. As you go through, it mounts up and you think, I'm not sure how good this defence is, mm. um, but we'll do our best. Mm. So, you know, you never go in there knowing that someone's guilty, and that's the dinner party question mm. that I want the dollar for, is that people say, what do you do if you know they're guilty? Mm. If you know they're guilty? And the answer is, well, you never know, because you weren't there. This might be too hard a question, and I mentioned some of the um, the more notable characters that you've represented, but are there any that really stand out again maybe let's talk about the dinner party scenario you know if you were asked the question then the most extraordinary cases you've covered do any spring to mind at all well i think the case of rory christie comes to mind he was a bloke who was estranged from his wife they had a young child together they shared custody of it and they were having a dispute as to how often he got it and he was very unhappy about that and then she turned up dead one day well her 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 uh, unit was full of blood. Uh, she's never seen again. The body never turned up. And he was a red-hot suspect. And, you know, when I first got the brief, I thought, it's got to be him, doesn't it? It's just got to be him. Yeah. But as as I went through it, I, I thought, well... And he assured me it wasn't him. And uh, there are a number of things which, you know, there was some, some of looked like her blood on one of his ties. But as it turned out, there was a real explanation for that. And... Uh, there are a number of things that emerged during the trial, and I realised very comparatively earlier that there was no prospect that he was guilty, absolutely no prospect whatsoever. So my whole attitude of that turned around, and whilst he got convicted at his first trial, he was uh, they found there was no case to answer at a second trial, and he's now living happily somewhere in, in Canada with a new wife and family. But 
that's the sort of case that you can get mm. that makes you keep an open mind about these things. As much as you might want to think one way or another and you, you, you know what the answer is, just keep an open mind. And that's what we ask juries to do. Until you've heard all the evidence, don't come to any conclusion. And yeah. I try and tell myself that. Yeah, we'll leave that uh, thought hanging in the air as we take another break. Tom Percy, QC, is our special guest on Inspiring Stories. Back with more of his story after this. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. You are listening to a composition by my guest in this episode of Inspiring Stories, Tom Percy QC. We know him uh, for his uh, legal work over many years uh, as a racing identity, as, as, I suppose, as well in Western Australia. But um, maybe people aren't quite as familiar with your work as a composer and a performer. Well, a lot of people are, and a lot of yeah. you go to enough Irish pubs around town. <laughs> I'll be paid in 40 or 50 of them around the state. Yeah. Uh, there's a few people who, who know me only as that. There you they don't, go. don't know me in any other capacity yeah. at all. And do you like that? Is it almost, yeah. it, it's a, just a total escape for you? It is. It's like people don't want to ask me legal advice. They just want to ask me if I know how to play this particular <laughs> yeah. song. Um, and they don't care who you are. Uh, you're just a bloke standing on the stage with a guitar. And uh, a lot of people, it sorts of wheat from the chaff, really. Yeah. And yeah, a lot of your songs talk about some of those classic um, Western Australian stories, you know, C.Y. Connor. Um, I know your, your your song Green Tick, you know, about that moment someone who might be carrying a, a kilo of heroin in their bag is about to go through customs and, you know, the green tick is their ticket to safety or, right. or you know, that, that crossroads. In a, it's, I suppose your songs are in, inspired by classic West Australian stories, but also maybe some of your own life experiences as well. Someone described it as litigation folk. <laughs> Brilliant. It's, it's a particular particular genre because there's about I've probably got about half a dozen songs that I've that I've recorded uh, which deal with uh, a court case yeah. or the sequel to a court case uh, that fall into that category. Yeah. So tell me about uh, music. When did it become a big part of your life? When did you first pick up a guitar? Um, well, I, I started playing piano, as most people do, yeah. at school, and I graduated to cello. I became a classical cellist, right. and uh, all the time in the background, I uh, I was playing guitar. I never had any lessons on guitar. Yeah, it's probably why I'm so awful at it, but uh, I get by. Someone's been paying me to play it for the last thirty years, so <laughs> I guess I can just get by. I have a pass mark at it. Yeah. Uh, so at school, I liked it. I, I love pop music, um, but when I went to university, I I started to see a few of the um, folk bands or the Celtic uh, Australian uh, Australiana type bands mm. uh, playing the circuit, and I, I really liked it. And I started following a few of the uh, bands around Perth, like the Settlers and the Colonials and the Bushwhackers, and uh, I started to hang out with people who did that. And eventually, one day we put a band together. I was with a friend who'd um, gone a different way with his band. He was a lawyer as well. And we uh, started Gang of Three. There was only yeah. two of us to start with. Oh, now there's four. 
And now there's four. Well, there's been four for a long time. Yeah. People say, how come you got four people in the gang of three? I said, it's an Irish band, mate. Yeah. Well, you can't ever have three then. You can't ever have three in a, then in a gang of three. No, that's right. If one, yeah. Even if one of us crook, we get some of the stand-ins. So it's, <laughs> so, it, so it's completely imperfect as usual. How do you compare that sense of satisfaction of, uh, of composing a great track and, and recording it or, or performing it uh, in front of a crowd, how does that compare to a, you know, a, the, the moment you absolutely nail a closing argument in front of a jury? Uh, I think uh, it's really on a par. I mean, some nights uh, gigs go badly. Yeah. And sometimes you play to empty houses. As a lawyer, you usually play to empty houses. But uh, when you get a jury, they're a captive audience. So, you know, you can't give yourself any credit. They have yeah. to be there. They haven't bought a ticket to be Some there. nights you have... It all goes right. You have a good audience, a uh, big audience, and the band plays tightly and you sing well, and it's just an amazing feeling. And yeah. uh, it's it's happened to me on a number of occasions, and I'll never forget it, and it's at least as fulfilling as when the jury comes back with those words, not guilty. Yeah. I suppose there's, there is an element of performance in, in what you do professionally and, you know, through uh, playing in a band as well, isn't there? Playing to a crowd is obviously something that's very innate to you. There is. I mean, you've got to try and understand your audience, whether it's a single judge or a magistrate or whether it's a jury, and uh, you don't you know very little about a jury, who they are, except what they look like. I mean, the jury uh, sheet will tell you what their name is, the suburb they live in, and sometimes their occupation. Apart from that, you're working in the dark. But uh, there is a, a degree of, I suppose, showman, showmanship about it. But that's not cheap or crass. That's just the art of persuasion. You've got to be able to put your client's case in the best possible way and let them think about it in the same way as you do, that, that, that there's just no doubt about this person's uh, innocence and uh, yeah. that they should do that. And you've got to make that uh, argument attractive to them. And that's the same way as if you're on stage uh, singing. You've got to, you've got to try and commu- uh, relate to the audience, that audiences are different and... Uh, so so are juries, and you've got to try and work out the best way to get your point across, like the best way to present mm. your song. Um, one of your other uh, artistic, if I can put it that way, outlets is uh, is writing. Um, you've just published a book. Tell us about the book. Well, I've written a lot of things over the years. Yeah. I've written, written songs, as you say. I've written a lot of legal opinions. I've, I started writing for the Sunday Times probably uh, 15, 20 years ago, and uh, I've always... Uh, kept my hand in. I mean, I don't go out of my way to write things for the sake of it. If something grabs me and I think, I really need to say this, I'll write an article. Um, it's the same. I've never sat down to write a song just for the sake of writing a song. It's got to grab me. I say, <clears throat> that deserves a song. And uh, I always, before I ever wrote for a newspaper, just always imagine myself sitting on a Sunday morning um, in a cafe with the newspaper and reading a really good article, and I thought, that's a really worthwhile article, and I really enjoyed that. And I thought, that's the sort of article I want to write, not not the ones that people force themselves to read or read as a matter of course, that they read it and they want to come back and say, I'm going to buy the Sunday Times or whatever it is next week because I want to read this bloke's article. Mm. And I always set myself that title, and I thought, if I can't do that anymore, I won't do it. Mm. So I thought about book in the same way. <coughs> I thought, look... If I'm going to write a book, I don't want it to be dull. I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't, I don't want it to be a book that you know, people will read for the sake of it or just to see where it's going. I want it to be a book where they just can't put it down. They say, 
I have to read this next chapter because I'm fascinated about what's happening here mm. and at the end of it to say that they learnt something. Yep. So that was the object in writing the book and uh, I hope it's, hope it's uh, achieved that. You know, the feedback's been very good. The yep. sales have been excellent. So we just uh, just commissioned a reprint of it. So I couldn't be happy with the response. Without giving too much away, what's it about? Well, it's called The Curate's Egg and, of course, everyone probably knows the... Uh, the uh, parable of the curate's egg. There's a very ambitious young priest. Uh, he is asked to um, breakfast with the archbishop and he wants to be on his best behaviour and, and not offend anyone. And the first course is boiled eggs. And the one he gets is completely putridly rotten, but he eats it anyway. And the archbishop says, is there something wrong, curate? And he doesn't know what to say, but he says, well, actually, archbishop, no, it's quite good in parts. <laughs> so the question is, can... Obviously, an egg can't be good in parts. It's either good or it's rotten. But can a human being be good in parts? And I've seen that in a lot of clients over the years. You know, part of them is good, part of them is obviously bad. Can you compartmentalise that? And it's a it's a conundrum that's confronted me over many years. And this is about a bloke who uh, basically considers himself to be a good person. He cheats on his girlfriend on a weekend away, uh, and it it comes back to haunt him. His whole life, in fact, turns to shit after that. And uh, he starts to wonder, am I, after all, a good person or am I just a, a, a bad person or am I a good person who just did something wrong? And, and it examines that whilst it goes through what I hope is a pretty interesting and compelling story mm. but with this theme floating through it the whole way. And I'm guessing that a lot of the um, characters and, and the, the things that happen in the book are in some way informed by your own experiences over the years, Tom. So would there be anyone in... WA or Australia who'd be a little nervous reading The Curate's Egg, wondering uh, if a particular character might might be at least partly based on them. I had some people ring up and say, look, is, is this this copper in this book? And I said, no, it's not. <laughs> is this this person? And I said, no, it's not. The, the, the characters have some reality about them because they are dredged from parts of people and clients and colleagues that I've known over the years. But uh, at best, they are about one third that person and one third someone else and perhaps one third made up. So there's no one who will uh, uh, be instructing their solicitors to issue a writ to me. I haven't had one yet. It's been out a couple of months. Uh, but I've, I've had people make the odd inquiry. And, I bet uh, you have. I think we're all only as good as the sum of our imagination. I mean, you can sit down and write a Harry Potter type uh, novel and it seems like it's complete fantasy, but I would think even J.K. Rowling would have had drawn parts of that from people that she's known and, and experiences and things that she's heard about. Mm. So um, I had no shortage of people to draw on and I'm, I'm writing the sequel now and it, it won't have uh, any shortage of uh, inspiration there either. Yeah, look what you've created, these characters. We need to take another break, Tommy. This is Inspiring Stories. Tom Percy QC is our special guest. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Uh, Earlier on in this uh, conversation, uh, Tom Percy QC, our guest in this episode, was... uh, Reminding us of the time as an eight-year-old, he went down to Perth to see the Commonwealth Games. And at that point in his life, his love affair with sports began. And it's really just strengthened ever since. Uh, Cricket, footy, racing in no particular order. Three of your great passions, Tom. Let's start with cricket. 
Why do you love cricket? I think I grew up uh, listening to the radio in the backyard in yep. Kalgoorlie, uh, Boxing Day tests and things like that, and I just, I just fell in love with the whole uh, idea of cricket, and I started to play it very poorly, I've got to say, but, <laughs> but I continued playing it for about the next uh, forty years. Batsman, bowler, uh, Chinaman, neither. <laughs> Left arm orthodox. You can't say that anymore, Tom. <laughs> apparently, that's, apparently that's out of the Melman Act too. Yeah. Let's it, say left arm orthodox leg yeah, spinner. Tweakers, yeah. But, uh, yeah, look, I just I just loved cricket and every chance I could, I would as a kid, I'd get down to the whacker yeah. and uh, sit on the grassy banks and just watch the people and I just watched them in awe and admiration and there's something about the mystery and the history of the game that, uh, like most cricket tragics, uh you just never get out of your system, and I, I no. still can't. No. You're on the board of the Wacker. Yeah, I am. It's been I, an interesting time for the Wacker, hasn't it? That has been. I mean, I've got to meet so many people. To actually, like when I when I got on the board, uh, the chairman was uh, Dennis Lilly. To actually be sitting in the same room with a kid who was my childhood idol and just sitting next to him and making decisions about cricket was just blew me away. Mm. And since then, you know, I've been there with so many great uh, people who've been involved in cricket, you know, the... Wally Edwards and uh, Sam Gannons and uh, people like Mike Valletta and uh, Graham Wood who sit on the board now, great text players from Western Australia. It's an absolute honour to, to have any part to do with it and uh, I might not have uh, got to the top in cricket, well, very far from it, but <laughs> to actually be part of uh, the sort of decision-making process that brought tests to this stadium, to Perth Stadium and uh, uh, and to the the redevelopment of the Wacker that we're looking forward to so much uh, in the next year or two uh, has been greatly fulfilling for me. Yep. Um, the East Perth Football Club is another one of your great loves. Um, why the Royals? Mm, that's a good question. Um, when I was at boarding school, uh, the head boarder there was Mel Brown. Oh, right. And he was, uh, he was just in his first year at East Perth, but he wouldn't brook any uh, person suggesting that they barrack for another team. And I remember <laughs> he lined us all up one day and said, all right, who do you barrack for? And uh, I didn't know any team. I didn't actually barrack for anyone, but I did know there was a team called Swan Districts because yep. they'd won the premiership the year before. I said, uh, Swans? And I got a cuff over the year. Said, Is that right? From now? from now on, you barrack for East Perth, okay? And I did. Yeah. He went and he played and we used to go and watch him. And uh, I remember going to my first game at Perth Oval, I think in about 1965. It was against uh, South Fremantle. I was mystified by it. I loved the old yeah. Perth Oval and I loved the Royals. And I followed them through thick and thin and I had the opportunity to uh, join the board about uh, 27 years ago and I'm still there. What do you bring to the board? Legal expertise, just, you know, lifelong fandom. What, what what do you bring to a board? I think it's just common sense. I mean, obviously there's a few legal issues that I can have a bit of uh, input on, but uh, I think I bring a sense of uh, tradition and longevity. If you add up the people on the board there, the president's mm. been there. He's been in charge for uh, at least 25 years. There's mm. a couple of other blokes who've got a quarter century up. So on the East Perth board, I mean, some boards come and go, but the East Perth board doesn't. We're still there. Yeah. And there's about 200 years of experience on the board. Yeah. You're a Frio tragic as well. Why did you fall in love with Frio just and never, not West Coast? Just never liked West Coast. Why? There was something about it. They just grated with me. When, when they joined the competition, they made a conscious decision whether they'd coexist with the waffle or whether they'd raise it to the ground. <laughs> and they decided to ruin it and 
remove it to the, the status of a suburban competition, and they've done that. They didn't uh, pay any heed to fixturing, sponsorship, and they took it all. Unlike South Australia, where the Sandful and uh, their teams were able to coexist, Eagles decided, we want it all, we want it now, and we don't care what happens to you. And I resented that. Wow. And I, I just didn't like the culture. I, some of the some of the supporters who knew nothing about football, some of the Blue Rinse, Delkeith, Chardonnay drinking women who all of a sudden were uh, uh, instant <laughs> experts really at think. football. And uh, you know, I was thinking that you were someone who you know found the good in people, Tom. <laughs> yeah, I do. not much to be found in West Coast, but uh, you know, I do my best and I try. I try and keep it under control. I'm, I've gone pretty quiet on Facebook this year. <laughs> I bet you have. Don't like kicking dogs when they're down in the gutter. Yeah, yeah. But if, um, they, if they ever perk up, rest assured, I'll make a comeback. Wow, lobbed a couple of hand grenades there firmly in the direction of uh, West Coast fans. So let's move on to the racetrack, Tom. Truly one of your great loves. You know, the race. I mean, to, to a lot of people, <laughs> these beautiful, elegant animals running around a track, that's, that's all it is. Where's the magic in horse racing to you? Well, I, I think it's, again, a function of my upbringing. You live in a pub. Yep. You get brought up in the pub in the 50s and 60s, and uh, there's no TV. All you're doing is listening to football, cricket, and races, mm. and I got to know know the names and the voices of the callers, and I I, I just loved it. The song of Bert Bryant or Ken Howard calling a race from Melbourne or Sydney, and the names of the horses. Uh, I I was just fascinated by it. I mean, without having a bet or anything like that, obviously I didn't in those days. Never had a first serious bet till I was probably at least eleven years old, <laughs> and. Uh, I, I just loved it and used to get taken to the track by my aunties and my, my parents in the old day of the Calgary race track when it was big and it, it was an occasion. Yeah. Everyone dressed up. I mean, it's a sad shadow of itself these days, but it was um, in the public psyche. Everyone knew about racing. Everyone mm. everyone knew someone who had a horse. Uh, everyone used to go to the races. Everyone listened to the races. You didn't have mm. much choice. Even on up until 25-odd years ago on 6PR, you know, it was a racing station. They'd stop everything and broadcast the midweek races mm. live. Good old days, huh? Yeah. So um, before, it's, it's all gone underground now. I mean, there's not much in the newspapers. We've got yeah. our own racing newspaper, got our own racing station. Unless you go looking for racing, you won't find it. Uh, and that's a pity. It's no longer mainstream. It's not, you know, the Sunday Times used to have every race turn and finish photos. Uh, a full page of that just doesn't exist anymore. So it's gone underground. Uh, they still get me, but, you know, people I meet in my everyday life have no interest in horse racing whatsoever, mm. yep. and it's unfortunate. Um, I suppose the, the, the racetrack has this um, this reputation, doesn't it, for someone who it kind of fits this cliche image of, uh, you know, a lawyer who represents, let's you know, in inverted commas, I'll say the bad people, hangs out at the racetrack on the weekend, has shady conversations with potentially shady people. You almost fit into this. You could You could be a character in your own book, Tom. Well, I'll leave that to someone else. <laughs> but I think that's the old image. I think that's the the Damon Runyon kind of 1930s New York image. And yeah. uh, to some extent it was perpetuated in the in the 40s and 50s through the Depression. There were those sort of people where, you know, betting was everything. You, know, you could not survive unless when your horse won you had a good ticket on it. But these days stake money is so good. Most of the trainers and owners, and I don't even bet. Yeah, People say, how much do you have on your horse the other day? I won. I said, I didn't have anything in my horse. I had a horse that won a $100,000 race a month ago at uh, Ascot. Uh, they said, how much do you have on it? I said, I didn't have a cent on it. It's, the race was worth $100,000. I only got 10% of the horse, but it's still a, a nice little payday. Mm. You don't have to have anything on a horse, which is the difference these days. 
the whole place has become very sanitary, and I think that's why it's lost its appeal. Races are so clean, mm. and uh, the, the degree of corruption is almost non-existent. I think I think every time there's some suggestion that a horse has been, in inverted commas, doped, unquote, uh, the press get very excited because it's so rare. Um, but it just doesn't happen. The people are very reputable, and... Uh, to some extent, that makes it less interesting, but I still find uh, thoroughbred racing one of the true pleasures of life. Yeah. Tom, thank you so much for coming in and, and sharing some of your story. I know we've probably only scratched the surface there, but uh, we do appreciate your time. Thank you. My pleasure. Uh, you've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. In this episode, the one and only Tom Percy QC. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We look forward to you joining us next time as we unearth another inspiring story. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.